The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture, reading, our scripture reading today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect is come, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, and then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, Victor. You guys can have a seat. Victor, this is kind of going to fit in context. I think you have the spiritual gift of scripture reading. That was fantastic. There's a way to hear the emotion behind a text. You know how to get it out of it. Well, last week we started a short series for us. It's, it's only going to be three weeks on kingdom living. And really the, the heart behind this is we're called to be salt and light to this world. We're called to be in the world but not of the world. We're called to be uniquely different from the world and yet intimately involved in the world. And the question that's really kind of carrying this mini-series is what exactly are we called to display in this world? What characteristics, what emotions, what message do we carry with us as we go about our lives? And what we talked about and what we opened up with last week is recognizing that we as the children of God, as salt and light, again, understanding that we are uniquely different and yet intimately involved, are in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is called to affect the kingdom of man. And so we said that there's going to be three basic emotions, characteristics, ideas that we carry with us in our lives and with our voices. Last week we looked at hope. This week we're going to look at love. Next week we're going to look at forgiveness. Last week we saw this three-dimensional hope, just to remind everyone where this hope comes from. 
It's a hope that's oriented towards the future. It's a hope that's grounded in the past, and it's a hope that's sustained in the present. But today, we get to turn our attention towards love. We get to offer the world love. It's not lost on me if you were to walk down any average street and you were to start asking the strangers that are passing you by to describe Christianity, to describe God, to describe Christ. It wouldn't take you long before somebody says, well, God is love. Well, Christianity is love. Well, Christ is love as that kind of um, you know, all-encompassing descriptor of all that we do here. Well, God is love. Well, they wouldn't be wrong. 1 John 4.16 says this, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Romans 5.5, as we got to look at last week, looking at our salvation, says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's true, God is love. Christ is love. That's the essence of Christianity. But you could also walk down that same street and start asking people. And there's another thing that you're going to run into. You're going to hear the exact opposite. And you might even hear that one before you hear that God is love. They're going to say, well, religion is hate. Because those judgy Christians over there who are called to love are really hating, judging, hurting people with their laws and standards and holier-than-thou living. There's this idea that because, um, you know, we are calling out sin, that instead of loving people, we're actually hating people. The hard part is that at times, this accusation is kind of true. Because at times, instead of loving them, we actually hate and judge and hurt those under the guise of loving them. Unfortunately, the accusation of hate is unavoidable, though. Because for some people, what they call hate is actually us going, there's a standard that you have to hold on to. They don't like to be told what they can and cannot do, so they reject the notion that we, under the heading of love, can even judge. It's interesting. Many years ago, there was a popular tweet. I don't really like to... I'm not on Twitter. I hate Twitter. But there's a popular tweet that came up. And this was from the, uh, it was the then President Barack Obama. And he tweeted this tweet. And it took off like a wildfire. And he said this, retweet, if you believe everyone should be able to marry the person they love. Hashtag love is love. Love is love. I mean, that took off like a wildfire. That was spread all over the place. And since then, we've seen the idea promoted all over the place that love is love. And it's almost held as this like irrefutable standard. Well, if you call it love, you can do whatever you want. If you call it love, then it has to be love. If you're doing this thing under the guise of love, well, then clearly it has to be right. And I think worse yet, we've seen so many people assume that Jesus' love looks and follows this idea that love is love. I think this is why we've seen so many churches fall in line with the acceptance of sin and start blaming and using God to uh, you know, say that their actions towards sin are right and true. Well, here's the surprising part about that statement, love is love. I actually agree with it. Not in the way that they use it, but I agree with it. Love is love. But there's a standard for love. There's an idea for love. There's an understanding of love. And I would go one step further that we as a children of God are called to promote, demonstrate, and live out 
what this true love actually is. I would say that our world desperately needs this true love. Hence this series and hence this subject. So today, I want to do something very simple. I want to remind us and maybe even recalibrate for us our view of love. And I want to do so by looking at the most popular chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's not lost to me that probably some of you had this chapter read in your weddings, which is a great thing. It's read in both secular weddings and religious weddings. It's quoted in books and movies and sermons. It's known as the golden standard of love. This is what love is supposed to be. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this chapter and I want to remind us of the amazing realities and even the difficult realities of what love is. Now, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 13, I want to just reset our context for us. I used uh, this, this context last week, but just remind us of what's going on here. From chapter 12 through chapter 14, Paul is looking at the spiritual gifts of the church. He wants the church in Corinth, and he wants us to know that, okay, now that you are loved by God, now that you've been called by God, now that the Spirit is, it has empowered you, you've been given gifts that demonstrate to the world around you the glory of God. And some of those gifts are for inside the church, that those special, unique, spirit-wrought gifts that we have because we are called by God. But others, we're given these gifts for the purpose of proclaiming the glory of God to the world. But as chapter 12 closes, that's really all what chapter 12 is looking at. You know, one body, many members, here's all of the way that the Spirit, you know, empowers us. But as chapter 12 closes... We get to see that we are all equipped with a unique gift. And that gift is love. And I need you to hear that. We are all equipped with this gift. There's not one of us can go, nah, I missed that one. I get to be a jerk. I don't have the spiritual gift of love. No, we're all equipped with the gift of love. I mean, this is just hear how Paul even ends this. You know, at, at the end, he says, regardless of the giftings, that without love, I am nothing. That's, that's how he words this, that without love, I am nothing. See how he opens up 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. I just want to read it again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of, and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic words and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What I love about where Paul starts this chapter is that these comparisons are taken directly from the gifts that we see in chapter 12. And these comparisons even highlight those attributes and giftings that the Corinthians held in high esteem. Like these are the giftings that people really wanted. These are the giftings that when they're hearing all of these gifts passed around, this is how the, this is how the Spirit has empowered you. This is where people are like, ooh, 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 I want the gift of tongues. I want the gift of the Spirit. I want the gift of prophecy. I want the gift of knowledge. I want to be known for these things. And what Paul says is, listen, you can have any of these things, but if you have not love, as he says, I'm nothing. He places love above them all. He places love as the chief 
determining factor for everything else. I think the Corinthians would have been taken back from these first three verses. They weren't verses when they got it in this section of of this letter. Because they held personal convictions about these gifts. And Paul knew it. Paul was going after them. Paul was trying to poke them in the eyes and poke them in the heart. You want to stand above other people, but if you have not love for those other people, what? You are nothing. You should just, you know, run from the rest. You gain, I am nothing, I gain nothing, and you're like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You know, this week, though, as I was prepping for this, I was thinking, what if Paul were addressing the modern church? What if you were writing to us these first three verses and looking at love? What do we hold in high esteem to think about, oh, yes, if I have this but not love, how do we fall short? I think he could write something like this. Christians, you set out to prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information that you can cram into your heads. I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. Christian, you who affirm the spiritual presence in your meetings and in your worship services because you have certain styles that you follow, whether formal or traditional or casual or spontaneous, but if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you're spiritually bankrupt. You who insist that speaking in tongues is a, a test to the second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that even if love does not characterize your life, there's no evidence of even the first work of the Spirit. Here's the other thing I was thinking about. Again, I'm thinking of like the global American church, not even our church in particular. But what, what struck me as I was thinking about these aspects is how each unique church or each unique maybe tradition or, yeah, let's stick with them, tradition. Each unique tradition focuses on one thing. Like I'll be frank, don't we judge people by their theological knowledge? Don't we categorize them by how well you know the isms? Don't we ask, well, how many Bible verses have you memorized? Don't we look for what theological degrees that you have? But what Paul is saying, if there's not love, who cares what you know? I know other people we could focus maybe in on the spirit or on the worship, but I think for us, it really is that question of, okay, you have the knowledge, but do you have the love? I, even just, again, going personal here, because I think this is, what preaching does, think about, you know, what is the mission statement that we have recently adopted in the last couple of years? Community Bible Church exists so that people can know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, and in so doing, grow the kingdom of God. We're great at knowing. We are great at knowing. Maybe, maybe what we need to hear from this, maybe what we need to work on as a church is the serving and the loving part. Maybe that people, the first thing they don't see is the knowledge. The first thing they see is the love because it's very clear if Paul says you can, you can speak of the tongues of men and you're a clanging gun. You can, have the, you can have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, but I am nothing. You can deliver up your body in a sacrificial service, but without love, I gain nothing. He's very clear love is, stands above all of those things. Even to just continue to, be personal and up in your grill because it's been you know, convicting to me this week. I think when we start, it's so easy for us to start judging people based upon those gifts we're talking about. This is just a bit of an aside, but again, I want to go there. The church of Corinth was known for one thing, if you look at all of 
this letter. It was known for wrongly judging the worth of a person. In the beginning, you could see the first thing that Paul's attacking. Stop comparing the man's wisdom with God's wisdom. Comparisons are all over the place. Then we see that there's divisions among them over human capacities. I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Christ. Third, we see that they're disregarding members based upon the socioeconomic status and they're eating communion without one another because you had the rich who could show up early and then you had the slaves who had to show up late, but the rich did not care for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and so they would eat this communion. What we can see is a church that is judging and discriminating based upon intellect, capacities, and status. But what breaks through all of that, all the barriers and all the differences love and I think that's because God's kingdom is not one built upon the elite is not one built upon human conditions and human status it's built upon the shoulders of the lowly and the loving back to this kind of this chapter Paul doesn't want us to fall into the trap that just love is love Rather, he takes the time to craft this masterful description of what love is. That's what we see in the next couple of verses, 4 through 8. I say description because love here is not so much defined as it is described. It's not so much theoretical as it is practical. One person said that love is personified in these verses. It is love itself that is kind. It is love itself that does not boast. It's not rather the person who displays the love. So powerfully does love take over the individual's thought in this chapter that he is not describing a loving person, but he's describing love himself or itself. He does so kind of in three ways. There's the first there's there's four verses and they set the tone of what love is and he shifts back and forth between positive and negative. Notice that in this first part there's there's the first pair of characteristics is positive. Here's what love is. Then he has four pair of negative characteristics. And then he goes back to the two more pair of positive characteristics. I want to walk through these characteristics to see, again, how is love personified in our world? How can we display love with our lives, not necessarily by us, be, by us loving, but by us becoming love? This is what love is. First pair positive characteristics this is verse four love is patient and kind these first two fit together perfectly to be patient is to be kind and to be kind often means to be patient d.a carson much smarter man than me says this love is not merely patient nor long suffering in the face of injury but quick to pay back with kindness what it received with hurt love looks like a patient person enduring hurt over and over and over again Looks like a person when on the outside of the world goes, why aren't you fighting back? Why aren't you hurting back? Why aren't you going personal when they're going personal? Instead, a person goes, no, I'm going to be patient and kind in, 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 in the presence of hurt. Well, then he goes negative. Four pair. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
simply said, love is not proud. It's unwilling to have this intense negative feeling over another person's achievement or success. It's never filled with jealousy. I love how one Greek, Greek dictionary describes it. It says this, uh, love is going to look for the blessings in others. It never behaves as a braggart or a windbag. Windbag was a funny word. It's, it's never going to sit there and go, well, I'm this and that and the other thing. No, it's not going to boast. It's not going to be arrogant. It's not going to be rude. It's not going to envy. Love does not behave improperly towards others. It's looking out for the interest of others and not its own self-interest. Here's, I think, the other way that you can look at this. Love understands the value and the worth of a man. Love's not going to sit there and try to puff themselves up by bringing other people down. So it's interesting, as I'm studying this chapter and as I'm just prepping for the sermon, people and stories came to mind where I, I, I actually saw love personified in somebody's heart and life. A while ago, I was playing golf with some friends and I was, by every earthly standard, the least of them on the foursome. It was kind of from, from a socioeconomic status, I was the least from, I was the youngest at the time from the people that, uh, you know, I've had the opportunities to, to, um, to, to lead. I, I was the least there. I, mean, I was just kind of, the, I was the least of these in that foursome. There was one individual that as, he, as we got up to a tee box, we were following this group that just kept getting slower and slower and slower and more frustrating and more frustrating. I don't know if there's any golfers out there. It's kind of a pain when you're like, we just want to be home before dinner. I'm really not allowed to play golf anymore because I've had too many six-hour rounds. And the guy gets up on the tee box and he starts yelling at the people that are in the fairway. You need to go faster. I actually can't say what he was actually saying. You need to pick up your ball. Why are you going so slow? But what I heard was, I deserve better. You shouldn't be slowing me down. I'm more important than this. What are you doing to make my life so miserable? He was the only one mad in the foursome. Kind of the rest of us were like, hang on, dude, just it's okay. I got in the cart and I was riding with a friend. And if you were to use kind of the world standards of judging people, who's the most important of the foursome, this guy might might have been able to kind of take the cake on that. And, and I looked at him and went, How come you weren't angry? How come you weren't mad? In fact, I actually said I was like, I really appreciate that. You're not the one screaming at the person out ahead of us because you don't think you're better than. The response stuck with me. He looked at me and goes, Ryan, I'm the son of a truck driver. Why am I going to yell at those guys? Now, it's also interesting as I know what his dad does. And his dad was a truck driver at one time. I was like, what? But this man understood just his own worth compared to the person ahead of him. He understood at that moment. It's like, it doesn't matter. Why am I going to start tearing down somebody else? Because I think I'm more important than them. It's just a game. That's love. 
Love understands the value and the worth of a person. Love understands that's not gonna sit here and envy and boast. It's not gonna go, I wish I had what that person had and look at all I have. No, he's gonna sit there and go, it's, this is who I am. Next. It is not arrogant or rude. Again, I, I think kind of that same illustration works. It has an eye for others. It's not insisting on it's my way or the highway. It's understanding that you live life with other people, dealing with other people's weaknesses and offering grace. Just picking it up. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is not easily angered or keeps records of wrong. Love doesn't sit there and say, you did this to me. And so now I'm going to respond in kind. Love does not have this checklist of, let me tell you about all of the offenses that you've put me through. Simply put, love offers grace. Next, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not rejoice in looking, in, at, looking at and, and, and overseeing the failures of others. It's not even happy when their enemies fail. It's not sitting there and, and desiring to have those that they think that they're better than fall on their face. This one hit me hard because haven't we built almost a culture around that? We like to see when others fail. We make movies about it. We make podcasts about it. We make memes about it. We tell stories about it. Let me tell you where this person fell on his face. Let me tell you where this person failed me. Let me tell you about all the stuff that's going on. Don't we love that? No, love has, has no space for that. Love recognizes. Grace needs to be given. Back to the positive. Love bears all things, verse 7. Love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I mean, love is grace. Love is kindness. I can't add to it. I'm not just like, but when I think about what love is, it's this, it's this grace, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, right? Or is this a description of God? Because God is love. But notice what Paul says next. And you got to keep the context in mind. We're talking about the spiritual gifts. We're talking about how the Spirit has uniquely, divinely um, orchestrated and empowered the believers to display his power to the world. And some of those things are going to end. But love, in verse 8, never ends. Some of the gifts will end. That's what we see here in this as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known what Paul is declaring here is that some of the gifts has, have an expiration because of circumstances changed. But love is present and active regardless of the circumstances. Hear that. Love is present and active regardless of the circumstances. 
Christ on the cross never stopped loving the world. Christ, when he was mocked and beaten and thrown aside, never stopped loving the world. Regardless of the circumstances, love applies. That's hard for me to say. It's way harder for me to even apply in my own life, right? Because I have a moment when I'm like, I'm done loving. Now I get to act like I want to act. It never ends. There's never a moment when I can go, nope, they've done too much. Now I get to act like I want to. No, love never ends. Now, I I know what I just read there, too, because I have to acknowledge a little bit, not the elephant in the room, but I have to acknowledge how these verses have been used. There's a whole big debate over what spiritual gift, what's, yeah, what, whether the spiritual gifts continue, whether they end, whether, whether we are continuationists, whether we are cessationists, well-meaning and highly educated people have been debating these views for hundreds of years. I'm not going to touch on that today. I will say this, as a church, we are cessationists, so we do view that the miraculous uh, spiritual gifts as prophecy and tongues do end. And here is going to be the one explanation that I give. I, fa- I found this in my reading. I don't normally quote this guy, but it was so good, I'm going to share it. This is a Swiss reformer by the name of Karl Barth. And he said this, Because the sun rises, all the lights go out. When that wonderful knowledge of God becomes ours, the purpose of such gifts as prophecy and knowledge and tongues will have disappeared. But love does not. Love does not. There's never going to be a moment when love ends. Love will never fail us. Love always abides. Love always remains. Up to this point, I've been looking at what love is. But I think before we close this discussion, we have to look at kind of two more important aspects of this discussion. We not only need to know what love is, as Paul describes for us here in 1 Corinthians 13, but we also need to know why we love and how we love. When I first saw my wife, I was 13 years old. She was my older sister's best friend. And I was at junior high boy. I was sitting in my parents' home. And my sister, Amy, Amy Luke was right there with us. She was, all, she was the other best friend, Amy, Amy, and Rochelle. And when I, when I saw her walk in as, as a junior high boy, I was like, okay, who is this? I'm like two years younger. So, I, you know, and I did the only thing that I knew how to do as a 13-year-old boy to flirt. I picked on her because annoying is about the only skill that a 13-year-old boy has. Well, seven years later, finally, when we were in college, I was able to express my undying love for her. I got to say I love you. And when I finally said I love you and formally declared my passionate affection for her and my love for her, it was because I found her lovely. I found her, the qualities, the characteristics, the person that she was, I found her to be lovely. I loved and loved Amy because of the qualities and the characteristics inside Amy. But that's not how God loves us. God does not love us because of the qualities and the characteristics inside of us. Let me just think of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And how, what state were we in when God loved the world? Well, look at Romans 5, 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, 
now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. God doesn't love us. God didn't love us with past and present and future because of something that he found lovely inside of us. He never looked at me and went, I love Ryan so much because of who Ryan is. No. When, he, when, when, when God loved me first and foremost, I was his enemy. I was detestable. I had nothing lovely inside of me. Rather, God's love is not originating from inside of us. Instead, it is self-originating. I mean, just the, here's, here's the other kind of cool thing that I, was, I kind of rediscovered this week. Imagine if you didn't exist. And then let's go one step further. Imagine that nothing existed. No places, no people, no things. I know it makes our brains hurt, right? When you try to think back before the foundation of the world. What's there? God, our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, I guess, nothingness, but in their Godness before they created anything. But according to Jesus, do you want to know what is there? Love. Love is there. Love between the eternally loving, eternally secure, and eternally complete Godhead. Without the Father loving the Son and the Spirit, and without the Son loving the Father and the Spirit, and without the Spirit loving the Father and the Son, all before the foundation of creation, we would know nothing of love because love would have never existed When we say God is love, God has been loving, God has been patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude, all of that stuff from the very beginning. The only reason that we know what love is, is because God created us and demonstrated for us what that love looks like. Love is not something that this creation conjured up that God said, well, I guess I need some emotion to give to these people. No, love is who God is. So how do we as Christians know how to love? Let me tell you, it's not by looking inside of us. Again, if I can quote D.A. Carson, he says this, God loves the world only because of what he is. And derivatively, that is how Christians learn to love. They learn to love with love that is like God's, self-originating. Of course, unlike God's, God's love God, God's love, ours, unlike God's love, ours is not absolutely self-originating. It is self-originating in the sense that God's grace so transforms the believer that his or her response to love emerges out of, and hear this, I love this image, the matrix of Christian character and correspondingly less dependent upon the loveliness of the object. So why and how do we love? It's not because we see the thing as lovely, It's because we recognize that God loved us even when we were still his enemy, even when we were in sin, even when we were dead and broken. And it is from that matrix of Christian character, it is from that love that we love others. Now there's one other passage that I want to go to before we close. It's 1 John 4. Maybe it's that passage that you wondered if I was going to get there because it's the other kind of famous passage on God's love. And to be quite frank, it was the other passage that I was considering um, expositing for us this morning, but flipped it, went to 1 Corinthians 13 first. There's, there's going to be a lot in this. I, I want to read you kind of a longer section. It's, it's 1 John 4, 7 through 21. There's a, a lot in this section, and we're, just for the sake of time, we're not going to unpack it all, but I, I'm going to read it, and then I want to jump to one specific verse, but I need you to hear the context. 
Beloved, which just fast. Beloved means loved one. Beloved means the person whom I love. So even the fact that Paul can look at Christians who are broken sinners, who are unlovely for whatever reason because they're broken sinners, the fact that Paul can even call us beloved, the fact that Christ and God is even going to look at us and call us beloved is not because we are lovely, but because God so loved us that he sent his son to to give us grace. That's the only part I'm going to exposit out of this. I will keep reading. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has has made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his, perfect, his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in God abides in, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see who who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have with him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Like I said, there's a lot in there. But I want to go to one verse and look at one simple, simple, one simple declaration. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of the series and the beginning of this sermon. The kingdom of God is called to affect the kingdom of man. We're called to be salt and light to this world. And what that means is that we're called to be uniquely different and yet intimately involved. And how does our king reveal himself to this world? Because you can't see God. He's not something that you can physically, you know, touch, see with our hands and our eyes, interact with, physically speaking. So how is our king revealed to this world? Through us. That's what I said. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
Here's what that means. That means that the way you love your neighbor and the way you love your friend and the way you love your boss and the way you love your coworker, the way you love your spouse and your kids and your parents and your strangers and your enemies matters. Because the way you love them reveals God to them. It's going back to the quote, that hashtag that started, love is love. Often there's only two options that we're given when we kind of approach those things that we disagree with. The first option is hate. Second option is affirm. The problem is that doesn't work for the believer because there are those things in this life called sin that we're not called to hate, but we're not called to affirm. Rather, Christ offers us a third way. That's called grace and truth, where we can look at the sin and say, yeah, God hates that sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. God hates that sin, and that's an abomination to him, but he doesn't leave that, with, he doesn't leave that person with no hope. And that doesn't mean that the only way that we can approach such things as affirming and say, well, love is love. You can do whatever you want. No, we can say, let me speak truth into your life. Let me describe to you how God has made us to be and let, let us offer this standard that he has in a gracious manner. And just to think about our, you know, being in the gospel of John, this is what Jesus came to do. Offer grace and truth. This is why when he's walking around the, the, the countryside of Galilee and his believers think that there's only two possible answers. You either have to hate the Samaritan woman or, and affirm the religious leaders. And he goes, no, there's another way. And other, that other way is grace and truth and love. I, I took us here today because I just want to remind you and impress upon you that the way you love one another reveals God to this world. That's what you carry out of this room. That's what you carry in your life. When you say that I'm, I'm a believer, I'm a child of God, I'm beloved. You carry as a, as a herald of the gospel. You, Christian, herald of the gospel. That's not just my job, that's our job. Herald of the gospel, this message of grace and truth. You, Christian, where you uniquely go, where I don't go, where the elders of this church don't go, where the rest of us don't go, where you go, your family, your friends, your spouse, your kids, your boss, your parents, your, where you uniquely go, what you carry with you is this message of love, this message of grace, this message of truth. Where you go carries with you the image of God in this way. That's kingdom living. The kingdom of God has been called to affect the kingdom of man, both uniquely, being uniquely different and intimately involved. And that's the message that we all participate in. As we close our service, we're gonna turn our attention towards communion as we always do. And you might say it's, you know, the, the, the task ahead of you of loving the person that you have in your mind right now might be so great that you're like, I can't do that. 
You don't know what that person has done to me. You don't know what that person has said about me. You don't know what that person, who that person is. Or you might think, God can't love me. You don't know what I have done. You don't know where I've gone. You don't know what I've participated in. But the cross of Christ nullifies all of those arguments. Because when Christ died for you on the cross 2,000 years ago, he wasn't surprised by your sin. And he won't be surprised by your sin tomorrow. He bore all of that weight upon himself from a position of love. Because he didn't see you lovely at the time. No, it was because of his love. And so it is because of that declaration that we receive that we can turn because he loved us. We ought to love one another. So I pray as we take this table together today, we can be filled up in both of those realities. The amazing love that he has for us, but also the love that we now get to carry in our lungs for those around us. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe this is the first time somebody's brought you to church. This is the first time you've heard about the, the love of God. Maybe you're sitting there going, I, I don't know about this. Maybe it's, it's still suspect. First, so glad that you're here. But here's what I would ask. I would ask that you let these elements pass you by. These elements are for the believer, but these elements, we don't want them to confuse you. God never said in order to be saved, in order to be loved, you have to take the Lord's table. No, we take it to remind ourselves through these physical elements of his love for us. So I would ask that you let them pass you by and then come find me afterwards because I'd love to declare to you, describe for you just the amazing love of Christ. But if you are here, as a believer, feeling that love that Christ has for you. Take it and enjoy it together because it, his, his love is amazing. Let's pray and we can take these elements together. Lord, thank you for your love, for the church, for the body of Christ, for the declaration that I, as your minister of the gospel, get to proclaim to all of us today. We are loved not because we were lovely, but because of your grace. And Lord, it's such a weighty, a, a, a weighty opportunity for us to carry that love into the world. For our world to see you through us. Lord, use us as your instruments of grace. Use us as heralds of the gospel. Use us to proclaim to this dark world the amazing grace of Christ. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee or online at cbcnashville.org.